The Biden administration supports local vaccine mandates, and the DNC goes full authoritarian, pushing for SMS carriers to censor your private text messages. Then, a respected medical journal publishes an article advocating for parents to lose veto power over transgender surgeries or transgender drugs for children. Plus, the three biggest lies about communist Cuba. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Okay, first of all, let's begin with saying that conservatives got a win here. I know it might sound crazy, but just bear with me. We did get a win because we got out in front of the vaccine passport monstrosity. We cut that off at the pass. We, you and I, cut that off the pass. No thanks to our politicians. So round one of this battle, the hardest round of them all goes to us. But of course, the left does not take a loss lying down. No, no. So this is very strategic from the left, their next move. Yesterday, we talked about the fact that Dr. Fauci said there is no reason for anybody not to get vaxxed. Well, that was just stage one of this next iteration of their plan. Today, they are taking it to the next level. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, I want to talk about Nutrafol for men. When it comes to thinning hair, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress, too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. That's why Nutrafol is trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. But you remember, healthier hair growth does take time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair in three to six months. And make no mistake— you can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show, win-win, by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code LIZ to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code LIZ. Nutrafol.com, promo code LIZ. Okay, CNN has now gone full authoritarian. This perhaps should surprise no one. I'm not surprised to see this. I'm only surprised at the boldness with which they do this, meaning they're not pretending not to be authoritarian anymore. They're just openly advocating for essentially tyranny. They have a contributor named Jonathan Reiner. Uh, He's a medical analyst on CNN who is advocating not just for Biden's door-to-door vaccine strike force or for Dr. Leanna Wenz, making it as difficult as possible for unvaxxed Americans. Now, Jonathan Reiner of CNN says that we should have vaccine mandates. Take a listen to this. Uh, I do think uh, it's time to start mandating uh, vaccines. And I think that private industry and private organizations will do that. You know, at GW University, where I work, uh, starting uh, this fall, you can't be on campus unless you're fully vaccinated. Look, I think that we're at, in the part of the pandemic now where the, the problem in this country is that 150 million Americans are not vaccinated. Now, half of that uh, uh, number is uh, less than 18 years of age. But let's look at the adults. 75 million adults have chosen not to get vaccinated. And that choice has consequences. Now, we can't force you to take a jab in the arm, but there are many jobs, perhaps, that can prevent you from working if you decide not to get vaccinated. So I think we need to be more proactive, and I think we will see 
uh, industry take the lead in this. And then, of course, we have Dr. Fauci himself, King Fauci, as some like to call him, who is advocating for vaccine mandates. And they're doing this, by the way, in what I consider to be a kind of sneaky way, because they are trying to avoid um, Biden having to be involved in this at all. They're trying to avoid the federal government being involved in this. So they're advocating for vaccine mandates, but mandated by localities, municipalities, cities, perhaps states, local vaccine mandates. This is what Fauci said on CNN. He was talking to Jake Tapper. He said, I quote, I have been of this opinion, and I remain of that opinion, that I do believe at the local level, Jake, there should be more mandates. There really should be. We're talking about life and death situation. We have lost 600,000 Americans already, and we're still losing more people. There have been 4 million deaths worldwide. This is a serious business, so I am in favor of that, end quote. Now, in, in my opinion, reading this or listening, reading the transcript or listening to Dr. Fauci say it himself, there's really no way to spin this. There's no way for the left to hear what Fauci is saying and claim that conservatives are somehow misinterpreting or misunderstanding or misconstruing what Fauci is saying. He is outright advocating for localities to mandate the vaccine. That would be forcing me or forcing you to get the vaccine, even if we said no. Now, after Dr. Fauci, because he is an ambassador of the administration, he works for the federal government, the federal agency, the NIH, he's part of the coronavirus task force. Um, the Biden administration, through the press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked to clarify whether the Biden administration itself, not just Dr. Fauci, supports localities mandating the COVID-19 vaccines. Take a listen. Does President Biden agree with Dr. Fauci that at the local level, there should be more vaccine mandates? Well, I don't have the full context of Dr. Fauci's comments in front of me, but I will say that... I do have it. Oh, go ahead. Let's hear it. He said... I've been of this opinion, and I remain of that opinion, that I do believe at the local level, Jake, there should be more mandates. There really should be. We're talking about a life and death situation. We've lost 600,000 Americans already, and we're still losing more people. Well, I would say first from the federal government, I, if I remember the context of the question, it was about federal mandates, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that's not a decision that we are making. That's not a, uh, that is not um, our intention uh, from the federal government. There will be decisions made by private sector entities, by uh, universities, uh, by educational institutions, and even perhaps by local uh, local leaders, uh, should they decide that is how to keep their community safe. If they decide to make that decision, we certainly support them in that step. So when, after I listen to these clips, I, I'm analyzing these and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, I, I, I don't think COVID-19 is over. Now, we, we've heard this a lot from conservative commentators saying, it's done, it's over, look at these full baseball stadiums, people that have gotten the vax, they're not gonna wear masks, people are over it, they're opening their businesses, they're not afraid anymore, it's over. And I don't think that that's correct. The virus is over, yes. The virus is over. But COVID, as in the government violating our rights, the government shutting down our businesses, the government declaring some of us essential and some of us non-essential, all the while collecting paychecks themselves, the government canceling surgeries or encouraging hospitals to cancel surgeries, the government locking people down, the government imposing all of these measures that led to the death of countless people aside from the virus itself, masking children, this brand of it's an emergency, so who cares about the constitution authoritarianism, this is far from over. Mark my words on this. I know this is not something that 
sounds popular. It's not necessarily a positive message. But here, here's my train of thought. 75 million American adults have declined the COVID-19 vaccine. Not because of disinformation, not because of lack of access to the vaccine. These 75 million American adults have declined the vaccine because they choose not to get it. And you know what? It's fine. Because the pandemic in and of itself is over. We know the truth about the COVID-19 virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We know that the majority of people under the age of 60, unless they're severely overweight, are not at risk, are high risk of dying from COVID-19. And we have, we have therapeutics that help lower this fatality rate, even the infection fatality rate, even if you were to catch it, if you are, like I said, under 60 and not severely overweight. So keeping that in mind, it doesn't matter in a sense if even one more person gets vaccinated. The end result of this virus will be the same as it is right now. But the public health officials can't admit that. They can't do what I just did or what you do on a daily basis and analyze this, look at the science and say, actually, the conclusions that we're drawing now, a year and a half after the beginning of this, uh, or after the beginning of this virus, are different than what we predicted, you know, in March 2020. No, the governors and mayors who swooped in like tyrants this past year, the ones who levied absolutely inexcusable burdens on our way of life, not even allowing us, by the way, to go to church, we should not forget about that part. I don't want to get tangential here, but we should never forget the politicians that did not allow us to go to our houses of worship. These politicians cannot admit that it doesn't matter if the 75 million Americans who choose not to get vaccinated don't get vaccinated. Why not? Well, because it doesn't matter. If the end result will be the same, then how do we justify the teenagers and young 20-somethings who are at low risk of COVID fatality, then they go get the vax because they were told it was an emergency, that they needed to save their lives or the lives of their family or their community, and then either suffered severe heart inflammation, myocarditis, pericarditis, or in some cases, tragic cases, died from the vaccine itself. How do we justify ruining people's businesses? How do we justify prohibiting me and my family from going to church? How do we justify forcing citizens to leave public spaces like beaches and parks? A police officer on a four-wheeler actually kicked my friend and I out of a park last summer. We were sitting, I, I told this story on Twitter at the time, we were sitting on a grassy hill in a park, uh, probably a thousand feet away from anybody else, outdoors in the middle of the summer, it was 75 degrees, and we were told to get out of the park because COVID-19. Our closest contact was the police officer who came up to us on his little ATV. In California, it got so bad, I had to carry a press pass when I drove anywhere in case I got pulled over. It was justification that I was critical infrastructure because I was the media, and that is why I was outside of my own house during the lockdown orders. How can politicians justify any of that? It is tyranny if they, if they can't claim that the vaccine is what saved the country. And they can't claim the vaccine saved the country if 75 million Americans choose not to get it. And the country is just fine and the pandemic is over nonetheless, even if those 75 million Americans choose not to get it. So make no mistake, we've only just begun to fight this authoritarianism. It's not even close to over. Instead, what you and I need to do is we must play offense here, just like we did about the vaccine passports. State legislatures across the country must ban lockdowns, business closures, and mask mandates. Make it so politicians don't have the authority, the right, the power to do that. State legislatures must limit these so-called emergency powers of state governors that have been abused, horribly abused. State legislatures must strictly curtail the unaccountable power of public health officials who are generally unelected 
from any authority to declare anything that takes away our constitutional rights. We must play offense because this isn't over. Speaking of safety and security, let's talk about security online. Let's talk about ExpressVPN for a moment. There are a lot of things we search for online that aren't anybody else's business. And it doesn't matter if you use incognito mode, that actually doesn't hide your activity from your internet service provider. It doesn't matter how many times you clear your browsing history or what mode you use, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. How creepy is that? That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN because not only can my internet service provider If I don't use ExpressVPN, not only can they snoop on what websites I visit, they can legally sell that information, my information, your information, to to advertising companies. They can sell your data. So ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the sites that you visit. And they secure your information by encrypting all of your data with the most powerful encryption available. All you have to do is tap one button and you are protected. So protect your online activity today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Liz. Expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more. Protect yourself online. It's what I do. Use ExpressVPN. So speaking of authoritarianism, this story is so horrifying. When I read this this morning, I almost couldn't believe this. The DNC and Biden allies are actually lobbying SMS carriers to crack down on your private text messages if those text messages contain what they consider to be misinformation or disinformation on the COVID-19 vaccine. In your private messages. Can you imagine picking up your phone? I'm texting a, a friend, a study that I that I recently found and we're talking about it. Can you imagine if the government is snooping on that and putting those addendums that Twitter smacks on all of our tweets if we dare to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine without quoting Dr. Fauci? Can you imagine if that were to happen? I mean, I thought it was intrusive of the federal government to snoop through Tucker's Tucker Carlson's text message and emails. Now the DNC wants your SMS carrier to snoop on your private text messages to censor what they consider to be vaccine misinformation. Can you even imagine this? This is what Politico reported. They said Biden allied groups, including the Democratic National Committee, are also planning to engage fact checkers more aggressively and work with SMS carriers to dispel misinformation about vaccines that is sent over social media and text messages. The goal is to ensure that people who may have difficulty getting a vaccination because of issues like transportation, eye roll, that is not the reason people are not getting the vaccine, regardless, see those barriers lessened or removed entirely, end quote. Can you even imagine? Just in case you were wondering, by the way, if the infringement on your individual liberty by the left was done. The infringement in the name of COVID-19, in the name of an emergency. It's not. It's about to get worse. It's it's absolutely horrifying. I promise that I will, if this ever happens to me, if anybody ever gets in my text messages and tries to correct information that I am researching, that I'm talking about with my family, that I'm talking about with my friends, that somebody has sent to me, I can't, I, I, I don't even want to speculate the reaction that's going to happen here, but I will tell you guys. Okay, speaking of uh, tyranny, a medical journal says that, or published an article saying that parents who oppose their child transitioning genders, if this child suffers from gender dysphoria, the parents should lose veto power over uh, what this author is calling uh, transgender pediatric care. This This is what I expect from nutty leftists on Twitter, right? This is what I expect from um, fringe leftist news outlets online. 
this is horrifying. This is not what I would expect. I get, and when I say I expect, I'm always shocked by this kind of thing, but I wish I were surprised. I'm not surprised that this was published in the Journal of Medical Ethics. The author of this piece is a candidate professor at Arizona State University named Mara Priest. This is what she wrote in this journal, and I quote, if the medical community is to take LGBT testimony seriously, as they should, then it is no longer the job of physicians to do their own weighing of the costs and benefits of transition-related care. Assuming the patient is informed and competent, then only the patient can make this assessment because only the patient has access to the true weight of transition-related benefits. Moreover, taking LGBT patient testimony seriously also means that parents should lose veto power over most transition-related pediatric care, end quote. Forgive me for being skeptical of the medical establishment, you know, COVID-vax, ignoring science on gender dysphoria, ignoring biology, now advocating for the government to use the medical community to seize parental authority away from parents up to and including taking away their choice about their child transitioning genders. And what does that mean? What, is, what does she mean when she says, as long as the patient is informed and competent to make this decision? At what age does someone become informed and competent? What if we have a three-year-old who says that it's a, it's a boy and they say they feel like a girl? Is that person informed and competent? Then if so, why are they required to follow any parental rules? Why can't they walk out? Why can't they go to school in their underwear? Why can't they drink alcohol? Why can't they drive a car? Why can't they get married? Because we as a society recognize that children are not fully formed adults. Children require parents. They require care. Their brains are not fully formed. Their bodies are not fully formed. That's why we as adults are supposed to raise them and rear them and protect them and care for them. We don't let a child drink alcohol. We don't let a child operate a car on the highway. We don't, let a, we don't even let a child eat all the candy he or she wants. No, we make rules and we set boundaries because children don't know what's best for them. When, she, when, when this woman, Mara Priest, is talking about only the patient can understand the benefits of transition-related care, a child cannot. A child cannot make those decisions for themselves. Otherwise, again, why don't, we let it, why don't we let 10-year-olds get breast augmentations? Why don't we let children get tattoos? I mean, you, you literally need a parent to sign off a permission slip in order to get your ears pierced when you're under, I believe it's the age of 16. Children are not old enough to make these decisions. But again, this is published in a medical journal. And the reason that it's published in a medical journal is to try to give it some air of legitimacy when it has none. None. This is an unscientific ideological drive. The left is trying to drive a wedge between parents and children. They're trying to use so-called science and medicine to do so, but it's anti-science. I don't need to say it. I've said it a hundred times. You've heard it a hundred times. You've probably said it a hundred times too. Boys are boys and girls are girls. You can't transition genders. It's mutilation body mutilation to undergo these transition surgeries and these puberty blocking drugs that they put children on, these are, first of all, not FDA approved for gender dysphoria. And they're the same drugs used to chemically castrate convicted sex offenders in some states. Again, when we're playing offense, when we're talking about you and I, what can we do to stop this? This is where state legislatures come into play again. This is where the power lies in state legislatures. State legislatures must you must lobby your state legislature. You must run for state legislature and make sure that the state legislature bans puberty-blocking drugs that chemically castrate children for gender dysphoria in kids. 
The state legislatures must ensure that psychologists and mental health professionals are allowed to counsel children suffering from gender dysphoria without the risk of losing their license if they don't pressure kids to transition. What I'm talking about is what the left calls gender-affirming care. It means that they that the psychologist is obligated to affirm whatever the, the gender identity, the choice of the child, versus saying, okay, let's talk about your problem. This is clearly a mental health issue. You probably have comorbidities, other mental health issues. Let's talk about this before we put you on drugs that will chemically castrate you or mutilate your body permanently for life. State legislatures must ensure protections for psychologists and mental health professionals to counsel children suffering from gender dysphoria without those repercussions. State legislatures must protect parents' right to wait until the child is 18 before the young adult, the 18-year-old, can then make their own choice to transition. Parents must be able to do this without fear of losing custody of their children. Do you know what the result will be if parents fear losing custody of their children if they don't gender affirm? Children with legitimate mental health issues will not get the mental health care that they, they need because parents will fear taking them to a psychologist or a counselor because they fear that the counselor or psychologist will give them only gender-affirming counsel and that the ultimate, the ultimate result of that will be loss of custody of their child. So we'll have children who need mental health help who won't be getting it because parents legitimate fear that they would lose their child. Tell me that that's in the best interest of the child. You can't because it's not. State legislatures must protect parents and they also must protect, they also must ban, I should say, public schools from trans, socially transitioning children in school at the child's request without parental consent. This might sound far-fetched, but it happens. There's a case in Chicago um, that happened where a young girl asked to socially transition and the school did it, started calling her by different pronouns and by a different name and the parent wasn't even told. And then when the parent asked the school for the records, the medical records of the child, the public school system refused to give the parent of this child the child's medical records and how the child was being treated at the school. We have to, that, I mean, that's a government entity. We have to ban public schools from transitioning kids or affirming a transition of a child without parental consent. We also have to ban doctors. State legislatures have to ban doctors, your representatives and mine, has to ban doctors consulting with kids about transgender issues without parental consent. This cannot happen. The government does not own your child. You're the parent, or I'm the parent. It's your kid or it's my kid. If government infringes on that right, whether it's legislatively, via public schools, via the medical field, via another industry, the government works for you. Take back your right and protect it against this infringement. This is our children that are on the line. These issues are so much more personal to me since the birth of my daughter, thinking about allowing her to go into this fray, this battlefield, where she could be not only exposed to this indoctrination, but used potentially as a pawn in this radical leftist ideology? Absolutely not. Just like you, I will fight against this tooth and nail because I will never let my daughter live in a country where this is a threat to her if she leaves my eyesight. Speaking of the truth, do you know whose voice I continue to hear on a regular basis in my house? Spencer Clavin's voice, that's who. My husband is addicted to Spencer's podcast, which is called Young Heretics, and I don't blame him for being addicted to it. The only blame that I uh, lay at my husband's feet is for being late to the party. He did not begin to listen to Spencer Clavin's podcast until Spencer had already produced over 50 episodes. Well, now he's a regular listener, and I invite you to be too. Spencer's voice itself, and I'm talking about the tone of his voice, 
It's rich and melodious. And his grasp of how ancient philosophy applies to the modern world, and of course our political landscape and our cultural landscape and our spiritual landscape, is fascinating and illuminating and eye-opening. Young Heretics itself is produced by Soundfront, the same guys who produce my podcast. They also produce Verdict with Ted Cruz. We are one big happy family. So please subscribe to Young Heretics at youngheretics.com and tell Spencer I said hello. And please ask him when exactly he's going to deliver on that promise to create a workout plan for me because he said he would, but as of yet, it hasn't happened. So Spencer, balls in your court. Okay, one of the things I try to do on the show while talking to you or when talking to leftists, and this is what I did when I talked to... um, Uh, Mark Lamont Hill the other day, is I attempt to my best ability to show a willingness to answer the tough questions or engage engage in the uncomfortable conversation. And what I mean by this is so often I think conservatives try to be tricky or, and this is politicians specifically, or try to avoid the potholes that are inherent to either difficult or touchy or emotional topics. And this is human nature, right? But I think as a conservative movement, we need to be more direct. We need to be more willing to engage on the tough stuff, to actually meet these difficult or uncomfortable questions head on. We have to be comfortable doing that. So that's what I'm going to do right now. There's a spate of terror attacks being waged against Canadian Christians, specifically against Catholic churches and Anglican churches in Canada. This is a coordinated, deliberate attack on churches themselves, and because they are houses of worship, the mainstream media and the political class and the left are refusing to call this terrorism what it is, terrorism. But what's happening is these churches are being burned to the ground. Some of them ancient churches, historical churches, active churches that have congregations and worshipers that participate uh, in mass on a weekly basis. And I want to, uh, for my viewers, I want to show you a quick example of this. For my listeners, this is about a 15-second video that shows St. Jean-Baptiste Church in Canada being burned to the ground. You can see the spire falling um, as, as the flames engulf it. Take a listen. Okay, and there you see the church is falling and then smoke and flames simply engulf the rest of it. It's tragic to watch. So this is not an isolated incident that happened at St. Jean-Baptiste Church. This has happened at St. Anne's uh, Parish, at St. Gregory's, at Our Lady of Lourdes, at Sacred Heart. And it actually, a Vietnamese church was also targeted. And in fact, this Vietnamese church was targeted after the first service, after having been forcibly closed for a year, thanks to the government-mandated COVID-19 lockdowns. Now, this is awful to see. In in addition to these churches being burned to the ground, statues, religious statues, have been vandalized across the country. And we're talking about uh, John Paul II, statues of John Paul II, statues of Queen Elizabeth. have Statues of Queen Elizabeth, in fact, have been beheaded. She's the head of the Anglican Church, just uh, in case anyone was wondering. These statues have been vandalized, vandalized, churches hit by this arson. So the question that I have is, where's the media coverage of this? Where are the reports on this? How come we're only seeing these, the video footage of this because individuals are posting this online on Twitter. The mainstream media is mostly silent. As 20 churches have been burned or vandalized in Canada over the course of just the past few months. Is it because this is an attack on religious people, which makes it an attack on religious freedom? 
Because when we have any attacks on any other so-called protected population, the media typically goes wild. If I so much as criticize jihad, then I'm told that's Islamophobic violence. If I call COVID-19 the Chinese Communist Party virus, which it is, by the way, I'm told that's anti-Asian violence. If I call to secure our southern border, I'm told that's xenophobic violence. But literally burning Catholic churches to the ground in Canada, apparently that's not violence, according to the mainstream media and the left. It seems that they're justifying this. Hence the media silence. Because I guess hate crimes are only hate crimes when it suits the liberal narrative, which means this excludes attacks on American Jews or attacks on Christians in Canada. In fact, the prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, says the anger at churches is understandable. So it sounds like he's justifying the attacks. This is his exact quote, which actually contradicts himself. He says both things. He says, quote, it is unacceptable and wrong that acts of vandalism and arson are being seen across the country, including against Catholic churches, end quote. Okay, good. That sounds like a good condemnation. But then he says this. He says, one of my reflections is I understand the anger that's out there against the federal government, against institutions like the Catholic Church. It is real and it is fully understandable given the shameful history that we are all becoming more and more aware of and engaging ourselves to do better as Canadians, end quote. And Barry loses it. This is what Trudeau does all the time, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've certainly noticed that he says one thing and then he contradicts uh, he basically contradicts it in the same sentence. So as perhaps not to, he's trying not to anger anyone, I think. But th this is the part that's the, the difficult conversation or the touchy subject or the uncomfortable topic. So what the history of these churches is important. So the history that Trudeau is referring to is these schools that were run by the Catholic church. They were um, sponsored by the government, but they were the application of the school was run by the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church um, is problematic because in the late 19th century until about the 1970s, um, an indigenous people called First Nations um, were forced, the children of the First Nations were forced to attend these schools. It was an attempt by the Canadian government to assimilate these indigenous populations into Western Canadian culture. Now, the reason for this forced assimilation of children, the justification from the Canadian government, was because these tribes were in at, at many times barbaric. They practiced chattel slavery. They engaged in the murder of slaves just to demonstrate their power. They even engaged sometimes in ritual or ritual cannibalism, right? Just horrible, horrible, disgusting, brutal stuff. That being said, removing children from their parents to forcibly assimilate them in these schools was uh, no doubt the incorrect way to retreat from the barbarism and assimilate these indigenous cultures into Canadian culture. No doubt it's wrong to remove parents from, or to remove children from their parents. And there was no doubt that abuse and neglect occurred at these schools. And that is not only wrong, it's tragic. But instead of decimation, what the Canadian government was trying to do, they were trying to peacefully assimilate these native populations into their culture. That was their goal. They did not succeed in the way that they tried to do this. But the narrative being used to justify the arson against these Catholic churches, again, remember, the Canadian government sponsored these schools. The schools were then administered by the Catholic church. So these Catholic priests would accept these children, these indigenous children, to be educated. But the narrative justifying the arson against these churches is a lie because the accusation is that mass murder and genocide occurred at these schools. That is not true. The accusation is that unmarked graves, thousands of unmarked graves um, were discovered at these churches and schools. 
And this showed, according to the narrative, how many children were abused and died and murdered. Again, that's false. There's nuance here. This is the part of the uncomfortable conversation that we have to, as conservatives, be willing to have. So in this specific case, the unmarked graves allegation, there were wooden crosses that were used as headstones instead of headstones at these cemeteries. But those wooden crosses are old enough that they had decomposed. There were no stone headstones because the Canadian government wouldn't pay for them. That was not due to some neglect or abuse in and of itself by the church. That's a, that's a pretty big difference in, in narrative to say, well, there were wooden crosses that have been decomposed versus these are mass unmarked graves of we don't know how many people, just of children. No, we don't know that that's the case. That's, that's simply a narrative that's been invented by the left. That being said, you have to balance this with the truth. There were 150,000 indigenous children from First Nations that were sent to these residential schools. 3,200 of the one of the of them died. That's a little more than 2% of the children that went to these schools died. That's a lot of children. Now you have to understand that this the children dying does not mean they were murdered. It doesn't even mean that they were abused or neglected. Because this this the peak of these schools And this was incredible reporting by Chris Bedford at The Federalist. I'm going to read directly to you what he said. He said, the first of these schools opened in 1867, and they peaked prior to the Second World War, a time before antibiotics. And according to the report, the main cause of death was tuberculosis. Beyond that, there was influenza, yellow fever, and typhoid, the same diseases that were plaguing and killing children all across Canada. First Nations children died at a rate of two to four times that of their peers who weren't in these schools. End quote. Again, that's too many. There was abuse, there was neglect, and that's tragic and it's inexcusable. But you have to remember that the school system was created by the Canadian government. It was not created by the Catholic Church. And yet the Catholic churches today, these Catholic churches today are being attacked, they're being burned to the ground because nobody's willing to have the tough conversation about what actually happened or what the proper recourse, what the proper course of action now is. So the result of this is that Terror attacks against these Christian churches, these Catholic and Anglican churches, are continuing. Anti-Christian attacks use, they exploit this tragic history in order to avoid criticism for their anti-Christian terror, essentially. And make no mistake, these coordinated plots are in line with leftist ideology. The British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, the executive director's uh, name is Harsha Walia, she tweeted on July 3rd, burn it all down referencing the churches. And then afterward when she when she got put when she got pushed back for this, she claimed that she meant this metaphorically. I don't buy that for a second. How on earth do you mean something metaphorically? Mean burn it to the ground metaphorically while these churches are actually burning. You're responding to churches burning and you say burn it down. You don't just get to claim that you meant that metaphorically. No. And then a, a lawyer named Naomi Sayers, she's an indigenous lawyer. She said I would help her burn it all down and also I would help defend anyone charged with arson if they actually did burn things. So much for meaning that metaphorically. Again, engage in these conversations. Do not let the left take hold of narratives when what they're saying is a lie. Because when they then they take these lies and they harness those lies to push their pre-existing political agenda. And that's exactly what's happening right now in Canada. Don't stand for it. Meanwhile, over in Cuba, we talked a little bit about Cuba yesterday. And I want to talk about Cuba again because what, what we're seeing from the left or what I've seen from the left at least online since the Cuban people have begun to rise up against their government, is I've seen three lies from the left. Shocker, I know. Uh, Three lies from the left about Cuba and uh, the result of the communist regime in Cuba. The three lies are, 
education, healthcare, and economy. So I, I want to quickly talk about um, some thoughts that I had on all of this. So the literacy programs in Cuba are lauded by leftists in our country as being a positive result of communism. This is obviously BS. There is no positive result of communism. But it's also easily debunked if you look at um, if you look at the actual data, if you look at the numbers about literacy compared to um, nations that are equitable to Cuba but do not have communist governments. So what I'm talking about is uh, Chile, Barbados, Costa Rica. These are Cuba's neighbors that do not have communist regimes in charge of them. And when it comes to literacy, they rank higher or at least equal to Cuba's literacy rate. And they didn't need a communist regime to get there. And th- this is this is something else. I, I hear Bernie Sanders, by the way, was one who praised, he's not doing it today, to my knowledge at least, but at least in the past, he's praised Cuba's literacy rate. Well, before the Castro regime came into power, Cuba had a 78% literacy rate. So it's not like communism took it from 0% to 100%. 78% was what the literacy rate was prior to the Castro's. But it's funny that the radical leftists in our country never want to mention, mention that. The, the other point of this is the, the purpose of Cuba's literacy programs was, is, and always has been communist indoctrination. Children that are sent to school for free, as Bernie Sanders likes to laud, children that are sent, for, are sent to school for free in Cuba are done so with the intent of being indoctrinated. They are taught from a very early age that about communism in a positive light. They're taught about their government's communism. And this was always the intention. Fidel Castro actually said revolution and education are the same thing. Che Guevara said to build communism, a new man must be created. Society as a whole must become a huge school. So this was the intention of Cuba's literacy program. Anybody who's read even a speck of history knows this. So when your child is in school in Cuba, if you as a parent violate this indoctrination, if you teach your child anything different than the positive communist brainwashing that they hear in school, then you can be sent to prison. This, this is what Cuba's literacy program is. It's indoctrination. By the way, all universities or higher education school, meaning like technical or vocation schools, are run by Cuba's Ministry of Higher Education. And the Ministry of Higher Education is responsible not only for managing the schools and regulating teachers and curricula, et cetera, et cetera, they also, their, their job also is to ensure that the schools are in line with the government's standards on teaching communism to children. In fact, in, in order for these children to, in order for the children to actually get acceptance into these institutes of higher education in Cuba, they have to be cleared by what's called the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. Do you know what that is? That means that students have to have proven during grade school and elementary school that they understand and appreciate and stand for the communist beliefs they were taught in school. And if they don't, if they don't prove that they're a good little communist, then they're not allowed to further their free education. So much for free education. You don't hear this from AOC or from Bernie Sanders or from any other leftist who is uh, praising this education system, this literacy program in Cuba. Same with the healthcare system. So the healthcare system is something that Bernie Sanders, again, and these leftists, these democratic socialists in the United States are constantly praising Cuba's healthcare system. But the truth is, this isn't just a free healthcare system. First of all, you have no other option. So it's not just a free free for those who can't afford private. No, this is a two-tiered system. You have no other option except the government system. Elites actually fly to other nations for quality care, but the sorry people at home, the citizens of Cuba, 
They're forced to face terrible conditions or else forego medical care altogether. Yesterday, I talked about this just a little bit, about some of the conditions that were brought to light by a whistleblower from one of Cuba's hospitals, where if you were admitted to this hospital, you have to bring your own light bulbs, bring your own blankets. The instruments that are used to uh, for surgery were rusty. All of this is controlled by the government, which means if you want medical care, you have to fall in line with a communist government of Cuba or else they have power over denying you care. Can you imagine wanting that here in the United States or praising that? A government bureaucrat in charge of your healthcare? Horrifying. And then we have the economy in Cuba. Um, and this is interesting because in the time that Cuba has been under communist rule, its neighbors, uh, Cuba's neighbors have seen just incredible economic growth, but Cuba has not. Well, why? Well, be because Cuba is communist and the nations that have seen incredible economic growth are capitalist free market systems. So Heritage Foundation has what they call an index of economic freedom that, well, I mean, it's self-explanatory, grades the economic freedom of each nation. And they give Cuba just 28.1 out of 100. This is a very, very, very low score. And this is what they say. Heritage says, the state owns most means of production. There's practically no separation between the judiciary, the National Assembly, and the Communist Party, which can appoint or remove judges at any time. Corruption is a serious problem that remains unaddressed. Widespread illegality permeates both Cuba's limited private enterprises and the vast state-controlled economy. State-owned enterprises significantly distort the economy. Access to credit for private sector activities is severely impeded by the shallow financial market. Despite a decade of incremental changes, the state remains firmly in control, end quote. So interesting because um, that's under communist rule, this utopia that the left tells us that they, that people should want because of the benefits that come with socialism. In fact, Cuba's score on the economic freedom scale, according to Heritage, only exceeds the score of Venezuela. We know what's been happening in Venezuela. They are a complete failed state after being the richest nation in, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Cuba and Venezuela worldwide, they're higher only than North Korea on the economic freedom index, according to Heritage. So if you wanna compare for a second, Heritage's description of Cuba with that of Chile, then the, Chile, by the way, is the second highest ranked nation for economic freedom in the Americas. It's 75.2 out of 100. And this is why, according to Heritage, they've secure, secured interest in real property are recognized and generally enforced, and expropriation is rare. There's a recognized and generally reliable system for regarding mortgage, mortgages and other forms of liens. The judiciary is independent, and the courts are generally competent in their enforcement of property and contractual rights and free from political interference. Market-oriented policies facilitated by a sound and transparent investment framework have attracted significant foreign investment. The relatively competitive financial sector is open and resilient, offering a wide range of services. The exchange rate has been allowed to adjust flexibly without intervention. So this is interesting when we see these lies debunked about the healthcare system in Cuba, the education system in Cuba, and the economic prosperity of Cuba. And this, of course, doesn't take into account things like basic freedom, the arrest of dissidents, imprisoning, and sometimes death, the violation of basic human rights the communists have inflicted on the citizens of Cuba, the starvation versus the prosperity of capitalist nations, the religious freedom, the attacks on religious freedom, the lack of self-determination, et cetera, et cetera. Never let the leftists tell us that what is in Cuba should be exported here. All you have to do is go to South Florida to see people who have escaped, Cuban Americans now, who have escaped the communist dictator, dictatorship of Cuba to tell you how awful it is. We should never let the promise of free candy 
lure us into this, uh, this, this, this white van of abuse that Cuba is at this point. Um, the other thing that I want to talk about today, and this is a really, really horrific, really, um, it, it's hard to even know how to describe this, but um, what's happened to Britney Spears, this abuse of Britney Spears that we have recently, I suppose, that's recently been brought to light. And I want to talk about this for a moment today, but this is going to be available for locals, VIPs only. If you want to talk about this with me, head on over to lizwheelershow.com slash locals. And let's discuss this because this is really something to behold and something that uh, I think needs to be addressed. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. See you there. I appreciate you listening to the show. We do have more to talk about, but we're out of time for today. So in the meantime, think for yourself, use critical thought, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and do not let government or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. And please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating, a glowing review. If you do leave us a review, please uh, post a picture of it here on Locals. I like to read what you say because I do read all of the reviews. Thanks again for watching and listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzel. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. Senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. And production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.